Hi, and welcome to the Skift Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. I'm your host, editor Madhuni Krishnan, and I'm joined again today by my friend and colleague, Ned Russell, as we discuss the Qantas JAL joint venture being shot down by Australia, Boeing's 20-year aerospace industry forecast, and play, fly play rather, the latest entrant in the low-cost long-haul game. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey there, Ned. How are you this week? I'm good, Madhu. How are you doing? I'm good, but I'm also looking forward to next week when Skift will be hosting the Skift Global Forum at the TWA Hotel at JFK in New York. It's going to be great. We're going to finally be able to do the, the podcast together in person. Finally, we'll be doing it live. Um, we'll be in New York the 21st, the 22nd, 23rd of September at the TWA Hotel. Um, if you're interested in, in in-person tickets, they're available at skiff.com. And we're also doing virtual tickets this year. It's a hybrid. In, and Madhu um, and I are doing two very interesting panels. I'll be interviewing Ben Smith uh, from Air France KLN to get uh, get an update on how things are going across the pond in Europe. And Madhu, who are you speaking to? I'll be talking to Bob Jordan, the incoming CEO of Southwest, who takes the helm in, in February after Gary Kelly, the current CEO, announced his retirement back in June. So it should be it should be it should be a good couple of sessions. And uh, the rest of the conference has a great lineup. So if you're interested, check us out at skiff.com. Now, Ned, let's shift gears and do something different. Let's talk about the airlines. What? When do we talk about those companies? Oh, never. <laughs> we could talk about trains, but um, but you know, Qantas and Japan Airlines made a little bit of news this week um, when um, when Australia's competition regulator denied their joint venture application. You covered this, right, Ned? I did. I, I, I covered the uh, Australian Competition Consumers Commission's uh, ruling uh, denying the joint venture. You know, they Qantas and JAL are already partners, but they wanted to be able to coordinate on flights between Australia and Japan. Um, the uh, the competition authority though took a uh, took didn't see the partnership as being beneficial to consumers, and I think one of the things that really jumped out at me is is in their statement they weren't looking at the current recovery. They looked ahead when the market is back, and they they really are were concerned that Qantas and JAL would have a monopoly in the market, and I mean for good reason. ANA is pretty much their only competitor. Not pretty much is their only competitor in the market after Virgin Australia announced they were retiring all their white bodies and right. pulling out when they restructured. So, you know, it's uh, it, I'm not surprised that this was denied. It, it seems like it would have. It, it I mean they would have had a sizable market share. Um, but uh, you know, they they of course Qantas and Joel view, dif- view it differently. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting what you said there about. Uh the competition regulator looking toward the future and, and beyond the, um, the crisis of, of COVID, which is really kind of a change from even a few months ago when governments were really focused on preserving their airline industries. Now they're looking to the future to when, when we're all traveling again and what might come out on the other side. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny. They said in their statement that they, they acknowledged that there would be short-term benefits to the joint venture in terms of speeding uh, the recovery of flights between Australia and Japan, but you know they really took a long-term view and, and said that consumers will be better served when uh, the airlines compete on these routes. Hmm. And I know Japan is is a large market for for Qantas. Uh, they do a lot of flights to Tokyo from numerous Australian cities. You know, I don't want to say it's the largest Asian market. I, I don't know the numbers, but it, I mean Japan is an important market. So it's it's 
striking. You know, they're going to have to, you know, Jal and, and Qantas are going to continue to only be co-chair partners within one world. They're not going to be able to coordinate as uh, in, you know, they they do separately with American Airlines, for example, across the Pacific. Now, Virgin Atlantic, I mean, is... We we know that uh, that airline has retired its wide bodies, but I think you're talking about Virgin Australia. Virgin Australia, <laughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, Virgin Australia. I mean, retired if Virgin its... Atlantic's retiring their wide bodies. That's a whole different story. That is that that would be the subject of an, an entirely different podcast. But Virgin Australia um, has retired its wide bodies. But did they have anything to say about this uh, this this decision by the competition regulator? Or where I do you think not... they might? Th- where do you think they might fall on this? Like, just spec- <laughs> if you're speculating, I've not seen an official statement, but they had filed objections to the partnership with the the competition authority. So, I'm imagine the uh, the uh, leadership there in Brisbane is sitting pretty uh, happy right now that that this partnership isn't going forward. Well, just cur- out of curiosity, because I haven't been following it very closely, did Virgin Australia file its objections before or after it had retired its wide body fleet? That is a good question on the timeline, Madhu. They filed their um, it was August twenty twenty one. Oh, um, so right. So yeah, they. I mean, they've been actively, actively against this uh, the partnership uh, even after the crisis, even after they retired their wide bodies, and they had a Tokyo. They I believe they they were prepared to launch Tokyo Haneda service just before everything came down. I remember they were. They pulled down Hong Kong, and we we're going to shift some of their wide bodies over to Tokyo before the crisis hit. So, you know, so they're looking Australia... to the future as well. Well, this is before the crisis. Well, you know, no, no, remember... in terms yeah, of like yeah. they're filing their objection just last month. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I th- while we say they retired their wide bodies, I do remember distinctly in the, in the plan is that they ne- they didn't say they would be out of the long haul business forever. It was, you know, we, for the recovery, I forget for the period, but it was for several years, we have no intentions, but, you know, they made it, they, they had vague enough language to be clear that we probably will return to long haul flying at some point, which doesn't surprise me. Virgin Australia, you know, while they, they were struggling before the crisis, they had a strong uh, joint venture with Delta between uh, Australia and the U.S. mainland. You know, like I said, they were in Hong Kong, they were going to Tokyo Haneda, so it's, um, it's not surprising that they want they still want a piece of that market in the future. And probably if, at least in the, before they ramp up their uh, wide body market there this will affect feed too. Like domestic Australia flights to feed those Sydney or those Tokyo flights. Oh, for sure because if you think about it, you know, while Jal and Qantas can still code share, you know, they're not coordinating on that. So if I'm landing in in Sydney and I want the you know, quickest connection to get to Adelaide, that might be in Virgin Australia. So, right. it, you know, there's there's definitely a lot of ancillary benefits to Virgin Australia there by not having Jal and Qantas in, in a joint venture. You know, and it's interesting, ANA has uh, sat out of the docket as far as I can tell, you know, but they also stand to benefit from from this decision. decision. Yeah, I wonder why ANA um, held its fire. It's hard to say. Hmm. All right, let's, uh, let's take a quick break here, Ned, and we'll be back on the other side. Hey, Madhu, welcome back. Hey, Ned, good to be back. (laughs) So you got to write about Boeing's new outlook for the next 20 years in commercial aircraft today. It's a a $9 trillion uh, forecast. So why don't you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. I mean, it, it, yes, nine trillion dollars, and uh, this is. Are we this, sure we're not talking about the U.S. stimulus package? <laughs> this is um, 
you know, it's it's not just commercial aircraft. The nine trillion dollars encompasses um, defense and space, uh, commercial aircraft, and um, Boeing's sizable, you know, after or not Boeing's, but the industry's sizable aftermarket uh, um, market. <laughs> and uh, and once again, you know, when the, when Boeing put Boeing's put out this CMO for decades, and uh, and it's um it's not just a Boeing forecast. It's the entire aerospace market. So, you know, all the defense contractors, all Boeing and Airbus and all the various MROs and, and aftermarket providers. So this, this forecast was interesting. It's, 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 when I say it's going to sound like a little bit, but it's, um, it's up from the 8.5 trillion 20 year forecast last year. Which oh, you know, when you well, hear that's that, interesting. We're still sitting in a crisis, and they upped their forecast. Yes, and uh, you know, when you think of that um, number, eight point five trillion versus nine trillion, we're still talking about a five hundred billion dollar difference. So that's quite a significant, uh, at least in terms of raw dollar value. Um, Can you tell me about? I mean, what what did they did the did the crisis slow things down? You, I mean, I, I'm sitting here thinking you know, that must have hit airlines. So tell us more. Yeah, there's a couple of things that were interesting about the the um, the outlook. And one, uh, remember, this is a 20 year outlook. Um, the first was that you know Boeing drew a pretty sharp contrast between the COVID crisis and previous crises that affected the airline industry, like September 11th and um, the, the great recession in 2008. Um, the, in those, in those crises, you know, the underlying economy worldwide took a hit and therefore airline, the air, air transport industry took a while to recover because people just didn't weren't traveling in this, um, in this crisis. Yes, there were, there have been recessions around the world, but um, the global economy is back to growing. You know, it, it grew, it's about 3%. It's on track to be about 3% growth worldwide. So um, so the economy is more or less recovered. I mean, that, 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 that's not saying on the micro level, like, you know, people who are out of jobs still are out of work, but like on a macro level, the economy is growing again. So that means, it, so sorry, it, go on. No, no, it sounds like Boeing's, uh, you know, listening to all the airlines that say, you know, when restrictions ease in markets, demand comes back like like that and it sounds like boeing's taking that to heart as they're as they've come out with this forecast that's exactly right and boeing thinks that the full airline industry recovery probably won't happen until the end of 2023 or at the end of 2024 and that's when international regulations and restrictions start to fall and yeah. long-haul travel comes back but i the should other... say that that tends to be the consensus on that yes. you know we hear that from iota from all a bunch of sources in 2023 20, and you know like like everyone else boeing is saying you know the um, domestic large domestic markets will come back first and we've already seen that you know there's a little bit of a hiccup in the u.s with with the delta variant of the coronavirus but you know russia china the u.s brazil these are all markets that are coming back the next step will be regional markets so intra americas intra asia intra europe um and then long haul international will be the last to recover um but the other interesting thing that jumped out at me with this outlook ned was um that the company Boeing really predicts only a couple of years of choppiness, right? They, they, they're two years lost growth, but then the airline industry will go back to growing at the rate it was predicted to grow before the crisis. So in other words, if you think of a, 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 a gra line on a graph, you know, trending upwards, there's a brief blip where the line 
dips a little bit, but then goes back to what it was expected to be. So in other words, long-term growth prospects are not affected at all, which I thought was kind of interesting. You'd think that this two years of going on two years of uh, industry crisis would um, would affect long-term growth more significantly, or at least bring the level down, but it didn't. I, yeah, I really, I mean, I'm with you. We've, we've read so much about how people are, are you know, taking trains, uh, long distance trains in right. Europe more. And here in America, we've, you know, I think the road trip has definitely had a renaissance. I've taken road trips with my family far more than I ever did before the crisis. Same. Uh, you know, so it's interesting that they expect the growth to come back, though. I do, you know, I don't know if you have this, this granular level data, if, if places like Africa, um, Southeast Asia markets that don't have alternatives to flying uh, are going to lead that growth. I mean, but then again, that was the expectation before the crisis. So maybe that's, yeah. Well, you know, that's an interesting point you raise because that is something that Darren Hulst, the um, vice president for, for commercial marketing at, um, at Boeing, brought up during, in the Q&A during, before the, the outlook was released. And, um, you know, there, there's another trend that's going on sort of in the background in emerging markets like India, Brazil, um, lots of Southeast Asia, portions of Africa, there's an increasing trend towards urbanization. That's a, just a demographic trend. Right. The more urbanized a, a, a country is, the more likely its residents are to travel, whether that's to go home to their you know, hometown for an annual holiday or as they earn more discretion, as they earn more, they have more discretionary income and they start to take holidays abroad. So, um, that could be a future source of growth. And now Boeing is pretty bullish about that. That's interesting. So here's the, the million dollar question, Madhu. What kind of commercial airplanes does Boeing expect to sell the most of over the next <laughs> 20 years? We'll give you a nickel if anyone wants to write it and say what it is. You can reach me at mu at skiff.com, net at er at skiff.com. We'll give you a nickel. <laughs> to the surprise of nobody, Boeing thinks that single aisle aircraft will lead the growth. And that's that's the consensus across the industry, right? I mean, sorry. No, no, I was going to say, especially larger single bodies, single aisles that, uh, single aisle narrow bodies that can do sort of more flexible missions like the 321 or the 737-10 that can be applied to sort of medium haul, I guess you want to call it, as well as domestic routes. So the question that begs is, is it's we've, we've well documented that the A321neo is a more capable aircraft than the MAX 10. Mm -hmm. uh, has more range, can do a bit more. I remember a good quote, uh, I forget who said it actually, unfortunately, was, you know, on a hot day flying from Denver to LA, the plane you want is the A321neo and not the MAX 10. You know, did Boeing talk about this middle of the market? You know, we've, we've long you know, known Boeing as a gap in its <laughs> middle of the market lineup. Did Boeing talk about that at all? Oh, you mean that uh, that unicorn, the NMA, the new mid-market airplane? This is this is a unicorn that we've all been chasing, and people occasionally catch these glimpses of it off in the distance, like Sasquatch. Or I'm mixing my mythical animal me metaphors, but you get the picture. There's Sasquatch with a unicorn horn. It's off there somewhere. Um, like running around in the wilderness. So, uh, but, you know, surprisingly, there were no Sasquatch with the unicorn horn sightings in uh, during the CMO. And that's interesting because uh, uh, Boeing has in the past been, you know, has sort of flirted with the idea of this, of this aircraft that would replace the 757-767 um, in its lineup. Uh, you know, it's capable of, of transatlantic flights, but also can do uh, domestic missions and, you know, small twin aisle aircraft. Um, 
didn't mention it at all. And, you know, not one word. And seemed to hint that the Dash 10, the 737-10, could fill that niche. You know, the sort of the Dash 10 could fill the niche between the um, smallest 787 and the largest 737. Definitely. It's interesting. It's interesting that they've mentioned the Dash 10 because, like I said, I think there's still a lot of questions in the market about whether Boeing has the right product for that segment. But uh, yeah, I guess we're going to have to wait and see what they decide to do. Well, and we know that lessors and airlines have been clamoring for a 7576 replacement for years. And... Oh, absolutely. I think Madhu and I, we've both written about that at length over the last five, six years. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Boeing has, you know, for as we said, for years has been talking about this thing. And, you know, I think they got as far as some sort of like mock-ups and designs, but, uh, but it just it doesn't seem like it's a priority for the company now. Now, I mean, we both know as well. We all know that Boeing has kind of a lot on its plate right now and may not have... Oh, really, the- <laughs> Madhu? What do they have on their plate? Shocker. <laughs> so there's the ongoing 737 MAX recertification drama all over the world, Singapore being the latest country to... I also heard it. Malaysia has recertified as well. Malaysia, so, right. you know, yeah. China's the great white whale. There's another mythical animal. We'll add that to the menagerie of mythical <laughs> animals that we've been talking about on this podcast. Um China, China maybe should be the dragon. I don't know, the mythical dragon. Yes. So, so yeah. it's the last sort of the big holdout and the, by far the largest max market that hasn't reapproved the aircraft. There's ongoing issues with the 777X, which is t- eating up a lot of Boeing's um, engineering resources and which, you know, lessors have been pretty f- openly furious about. And um, then there are recent issues with the 787 um, and fuselage crack. So their their engineering resources are really, really committed. And so that it didn't surprise me. Although, well, on the one hand, it surprised me they didn't mention the NMA at all. But on the other hand, it wasn't surprising because it's not a good news story for Boeing at the moment. No, for sure. That, yeah, that makes sense. Avoid the, uh, I'm, I'm surprised no one asked is what, probably what I'm more surprised about than the fact that Boeing did not say yeah. anything. <laughs> So that that, that was a, it was an interesting um, forecast from Boeing. Um, they they well, really... we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to hear what Airbus's outlook is because I know that they're going to be releasing theirs soon. So, right, I hope at least. So yeah. So we shall see. Um, now let's let's shift a little bit, Ned, and uh, talk about a, a story you did last week, or sorry, earlier this week. Um, interviewing the CEO of. The latest, maybe not the latest, but one of a growing number of low-cost, long-haul, transatlantic airlines. Take it away, Ned. Tell us what That's you right, learned. That's right, Madhu. I had the, the chance to speak to uh, FlyPlay CEO Berger John- Johnson, and I'm very sorry if I butchered uh, your name, Berger, if you're listening. Uh, and he told me about FlyPlay's uh, business plan. Um, Essentially, what's, how's it going? They So I should say, they are an Icelandic startup. They took flight at the end of June. They've had two full months of operation. And you know, most people compare them to defunct Wow Air for good reason, flying the same kinds of planes. Uh, CEO Johnson was a deputy CEO at Wow. Uh, there's a whole, you know, it's a, it's a Rolodex filled of former Wow Air executives. And they're flying essentially the same route, connecting Europe to Iceland to the U.S. And so I asked uh, the CEO about this, and you know, he his his comment was pretty frank. He was like, "I am not ashamed of or offended if anyone compares us to Wow. I think in many ways that's a great compliment." And his argument for that was, "Wow was a successful carrier." In his words, now I don't have the financials, but a successful carrier until it 
overexpanded, which was adding A330s, flying true long hauls, he described it, to the west coast of the U.S., looking further afield. And that was when WoW really, really, you know, was that that sort of doomed them. Right. And, and he it, says, and, huh? and, you know, for any of our listeners who don't know, a Rolodex is this thing that you can put business cards in and rifle through to find contacts. A lot of, I've been at too many jobs where I've asked for a Rolodex and gotten a blank stare from, from the office manager. But anyway, um, <laughs> back to your point. Well, yeah. and also, wow. I mean, wow had these, these routes that were, that, you know, didn't seem to make a lot of sense to some really smaller markets connecting, um, Oh, yeah, I was looking at, at, in 2018, they launched service to Detroit, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and St. Louis, all, was it, yeah, all within three months in 2018. And, you know, these, I mean, I, you know, these cities have plenty going for them, but they're not uh, obvious starting points for a trip to Iceland or to Europe. Right. Especially for a budget carrier that relies on volume. Right. You know, so, you know. Johnson, he was frank. I asked him where they're going to fly to the U.S., which he describes as the main event. He, uh, mm-hmm. I should say, that he still views the airline as in its sort of, it's like a, a soft launch until U.S. flights start, and that's not expected till next spring. You know, I so asked him where they're going to go, and at first he said, "Well, I'm not going to say it's competitive," but then he he continued, and it was it was funny because he was like, "Well, it's always going to be some combination of Baltimore, uh, New York." Boston and Toronto. So I think it's pretty clear we know where they're going to be headed first off uh, when they start U.S. flights. And it's going to be the the Baltimore, D.C. area, New York, and Boston. I, I take Toronto out of that because, of course, they need to get Canadian authority for that, and they don't have that right. at the moment. So cities with large so, catchment areas, right? And and those make a lot of sense. You know, I, I it's they're not trying to make Pittsburgh happen. And uh, no offense to anyone in Pittsburgh, it's a lovely city, but you know, they're, they're going where the population is. And I think that's for, for them. And what he says is going to be a very disciplined strategy that, I mean, that's a good place to start. Right. Well, you know, it's a, WoW did have some questionable routes, but it did also provide a definite consumer benefit. I mean, the, the, the fares from Cincinnati to, to say Paris or whatever fell dramatically and provide, there was, there was, those flights were popular. They just weren't popular enough at the fares right. that, that WoW needed to charge to make them profitable. Um, so, and, and, and that touched off, I mean, as I remember, that touched off quite a um, sort of market share, old-fashioned market share war among budget European carriers to serve all kinds of places. Didn't Iceland Air also launch flights to Cincinnati? I don't know if it Cleveland. was Cincinnati, but they, they, they definitely expanded into some of those smaller, questionable markets. And I, I forget the exact ones. Right. In and then, and of course, Norwegian, we have to remember, they started flying maxes to Providence and Hartford and uh, Stewart Airport near New York, nonstop from Ireland. So there was you know a period there in 2018, uh, 2019, that we had a lot of narrow body competition across the North Atlantic coming to the U.S., and I think all the legacy carriers can say that you know, while it wasn't a lot of capacity, it was enough to be disruptive yeah. uh, to, to a lot of carriers. So, you know, play, I asked play about the competitive environment and he said, and Johnson said, you know, I don't want to compete with British Airways. I don't want to compete with United Airlines. You know, my goal is to, you know, play to my niche, which is going to be funneling passengers from North America to Europe 
cheaply over Iceland, as well as some uh, tourism into Iceland. And he touted them having, you know, a, while being a big beneficiary, you know, being a boon to Iceland tourism. So they're trying to do that. Um, but he, he said he really doesn't want to try to, to take share away from, from the, big, the big players across the transatlantic. Interesting. And, w- and what will he do with all those aircraft in the, the winter? Did he say? So that is a question. You know, he he talked a lot about having gauge to flex things and everything. And in the winters, more focused on you know, the Icelandic, uh, you know, outbound traveler going to places like um, uh, Tenerife. And mm. I don't know why I want to say Alicante. I don't know if they fly to Alicante, but I'm, I'm feeling Spanish at the moment. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's what he talked. But again, the question is, how can you make it work uh, in the winter? You mm-hmm. know. Their business plan that they laid out in June outlined load factors of on an annual load factors averaging about 89% wow. by, uh, I want to say 2023, 2024, which is when they see their business plan maturing. Uh, I asked Johnson about that. And he said, you know, that business plan was before the current COVID wave in Iceland. So the, the targets are going to be pushed back a bit, but he does, he's, he is confident about hitting those. So hmm. I mean, he's confident. I have to give it to him. And, you know, if anything, he's got he got planes for uh, lease rates that were a quarter lower than they were prior to the crisis. Ample available crews in Iceland that are trained on the Airbus planes that they're flying. So, I mean, the, he could very they could very well succeed on just lower costs alone if, if when demand comes back. But it is still a big question mark. You know, there's a everyone likes to talk about being disciplined. But uh, when it comes down to it. Even he analysis, there's a lot of temptation to add those routes. Airports are throwing incentives. Lessers have aircraft they want to give you to fly. So there's, it's, it's still, you know, it was fascinating to speak to him, but I still have question marks about how it's going to work. Yeah, well, you know, that is that brings me back to one thing Boeing said in its, um, in its, um, in its market outlook, and that is, there are about fifteen so far. There 1,500 aircraft are leave, have been announced to leave the fleet, the global fleet. These are being retired. Um, not all of them are, are destined for the scrap heap. There, so there will be a lot of air, aircraft changing hands in the next six months or so through lessors or airlines downsizing their fleets. Um, so there, there's a lot of aircraft out there. They're relatively cheap. And um, we both know that this... Uh, low-cost, long-haul dream is something airline entrepreneurs just can't seem to quit. That's for sure. Everyone's trying it. Yeah, and your favorite, North Atlantic, uh, still has plans to launch next year. Yeah, 15, 15787s. It's a lot of capacity to throw into the market. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, it'll be a lot of capacity in um, December. Oh, yeah. One thing you can, if you you can fill a wide body in June between the U.S. and Europe, it's a question if you do it in December, that's for sure. Exactly. All right, Ned, let's leave it there. To all our listeners, we will be coming at you next week from the Skiff Global Forum, and I want to thank you all for listening. Thanks, Ned. Thanks, Madhu. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Should you have comments or questions, drop editor Madhu Unikrishnan a note at mu at skiff.com. Of course, Check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.